When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. Tuned into the Project Up and Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome to the show for episode number 65. of the podcast is brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the finest rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience. Located in northern Minnesota, you haven't experienced grouse camp until you've experienced it at Pine Ridge. Find out more about the Pine Ridge experience at pineridgegrousecamp.com. And by Dr. Callers. For over 30 years, Dr. has collaborated with industry professionals to create class-leading tools for e-collar training, GPS tracking, and more to support bird dog owners in developing top-notch dogs. Find out more about Dr. at dogtra.com. 
and by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Out in the field, how you prepare determines how you and your bird dog will perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance. So when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. Find out more about Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food at yukonuba.com. And by Gordy and Sons Outfitters. When your boots have the proper tread, you never notice how slippery it is. When your hunting jacket features the right liner, your body temperature won't enter your mind. And when your shooting vest allows total freedom of movement, you won't think twice about swinging through that quail. At Gordy and Sons, they want you to focus solely on the hunt and not the performance of your gear. That's why the Gordy family has personally curated the best-in-class gear from around the globe for their store. Find out more about the gear, guides, and expertise at Gordy and Sons Outfitters by visiting GordyandSons.com. And by Dakota 283 Kennels. Kennels built to last a lifetime. One-piece rotomold design, frame steel door, everything you need for a safe and successful hunting trip for you and your bird dog. Head over to Dakota283.com. Use the promo code PU10. That's PU10. That will get you 10% off any kennel from Dakota283.com, and that includes free shipping. All right, this week's winner of the Project Upland podcast giveaway, our buddy Dave from Minnesota. He's a friend of our guest today, and this episode was made possible by Dave making the connection between myself and our guest, so I really appreciate it. Shout out to Dave. Thank you very much, buddy. Project Upland t-shirt headed your way very soon. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show, just like Dave did. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast post, send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. We love to hear from our listeners. You can send me an email at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, last chance update coming up next Friday, June 14th, Lander, Wyoming. Films of the Feathered, presented by Wyoming Wildlife Federation. Big time guests, including Ron Bame, Ed Arnett, Holly Heiser, Kirk Billings, and they even invited me and Tyler Webster. I don't know what they were thinking, but I'm sure glad they thought of us. Looking forward to it. Friday, June 14th, Lander, Wyoming. For more information, go to wyomingwildlife.org and look for Films of the Feathered for complete event details. Hope to see you there. And one more upcoming event that I want to make all the listeners aware of. Presented by the Rough Grouse and American Woodcock Society, Grouse Camp 2019, Eagle River, Wisconsin. The dates on this are September 27th through the 29th. This event is the first of its kind for RGS. It's an upland hunting meetup open to one and all. They're going to have a lot of fun stuff going on that weekend, including education and informational seminars for new grouse and woodcock hunters they want it to be a learning experience it'd be a social experience i think it's gonna be an awesome event i don't know if i can go yet i hope i can be there because i feel like if i'm not i'm definitely gonna miss out it's gonna be a good time you can register now and find the complete event details by visiting roughgrousesociety.org look for the grouse camp event in eagle river wisconsin in the heart of some of the best rough grouse and woodcock hunting in the world find out more about it at roughgrousesociety.org all right let's do it today's guest probably needs zero introduction from me in case you haven't heard of our guest today i will share with you this Benno williams is a noted photographer author and bird hunter 
photography and writing have appeared in many sporting magazines, including Gray's Sporting Journal, Retriever Journal, Pointing Dog Journal, Shooting Sportsman, Covey Rise. He's written a number of books on his own. The list goes on. He's been a prolific writer throughout his career. He's a 60-plus year resident of Montana. He's very commonly known for his writing and his knowledge of hunting prairie birds in the West, of which we talk about plenty today. Ben Williams is 86 years old. He's been hunting upland birds for longer than probably many people listening to this have been alive. Think about that for a second and think about that while you listen to a guy talk about upland hunting after dedicating essentially a lifetime to upland birds, bird dogs, conservation, all of it. He speaks about it with a passion. It's evident in everything he says. He's sharp as a tack and it was an absolute honor to have him on the Project Upland podcast. I hope you enjoy it and I hope you appreciate what Ben has to say. Without further ado, let's welcome to the Project Upland podcast, Ben O'Williams. Mr. Ben O'Williams, welcome to the Project Upland podcast, and happy Friday to you, sir. How are you? I'm doing very good, thank you. And how are you doing? I'm doing really well. I'm doing really well, Ben. I appreciate you asking. What's the weather like out there? Well, very interesting. I'm just going to mention that. You know, we've had some some fairly bad weather for the last six, eight weeks, and uh, it's not been good. But anyway, for the last couple of days, it's finally uh, warmed up a bit and getting a lot warmer and we're getting some a lot of runoff from the rain and the snow in the mountains for the streams but i did get a chance to go out and fish last week and did pretty well even even though the water was high so well that's good to hear my weather report ben I, i did get a little bit ahead of myself usually i ask people to uh to point out where they where they are on the map so we can give the listeners a visual and I kind of have an idea, but why don't you tell the listeners where, uh, where you hail from and, and where we're speaking to you from today? Do you want me to start with where I live here or where I originally came from? Well, you can, you can tell us where you live now today and then, uh, we'll, we'll, okay, we'll rewind okay. a little bit and get your story, uh, in okay. a few minutes. Okay. Okay. Good. Uh, I'm in Livingston, Montana. Um, that's basically South Central Montana. About 50 miles uh, north of uh, Yellowstone National Park, so that'll give you an idea of, of uh, our location in Montana. The Yellowstone River runs through Livingston, and I live east of town along the Yellowstone River, in which I fish uh, practically, when I get a chance, uh, year-round. That sounds like a nice piece of country. You've got access to birds and fish. I mean, what more does a guy need? I do. I have... Uh, Believe it or not, the fishing here is still excellent. Uh, a lot more people are doing it, naturally, and that's fine. I'm not much of a big game hunter, but the get big game hunting is very good. And uh, the bird hunting, which I kind of developed for the state in this part of the country, is good. And uh, other than that, I mean, it's just it's a real pleasure of actually living here, which I've lived here, I guess, about 60 years, something like 60 some years. Wow, so that's uh, that's quite a while you've been out there in Montana. Yes, I have. I was uh, I came to Montana when the people actually thought uh, I was crazy. They said, "Why would you want to live in that godforsaken country?" And I guess I was just a little bit ahead of my time. So. <laughs> yes, you were, because now it seems like everybody wants to be there, doesn't it? And that's correct. <laughs> but anyway, I still have access. Luckily, I still have access mostly private land. I still have access to a lot of 
private land to hunt, which I've developed over the years. So I'm very fortunate in that, even though I can honestly say my part of the country and around Livingston, I wouldn't advise basically people to come and hunt this uh, part of the country unless they're after blue, blue or rough grouse. But eastern Montana, basically, for the average bird hunter, is, is much better just sure. because it's bigger area and also uh, the access is a lot easier. Yeah. You mentioned you've been out fishing a little bit, and I, I should give a, a brief shout-out. I have to thank my friend Dave and your friend Dave, and uh, I know his he and his son Tucker were out there visiting you recently, and he kind of paved the way for getting on this podcast. So it's, uh, it is an honor to talk to you, Ben, and I'm really thankful that uh, Dave made the connection. Yeah, well, thank you. And uh, Dave and I go uh, way back, and uh, I kind of helped him the first time out here hunting and. We got to be good friends, and he's a great person. And we have, when he comes to see me, we have a wonderful time together. Yeah, yeah. He speaks very highly of you, and I know he uh, he enjoys he enjoys when he gets gets to come out there and hang out with you, which is cool. Yeah. So you, Ben, you mentioned that you have been doing a little bit of fishing. What else has What else has been keeping you and the dogs busy in the spring? What do you like to do? Just get out for exercise and spend as much time outside as possible. Yes. What I I'll tell you what it's interesting because of the the. Uh, I run, I train my dogs mostly on Hungarian partridge, and then, which I have access to fairly close. I can be out in uh, my hunting field in less than 15 minutes or back in my backyard. And the nice thing about Hungarian partridge is that early February, now that didn't happen this year because of, we had such bad weather, but normally the Hungarian partridge will start to break up, the coveys will break up, and they'll pair up. And they eat, when they pair up, they get extremely tame. And uh, you can really work on a pair of birds or have your dogs work on a pair of birds, and it really works out nice. It's almost almost like planting birds, and which I don't do, but it's just a, it's an ideal time to get out and really uh, work your dogs and train your dogs. So weather permitting in February, I start, and, and usually we have good weather in April. Or excuse me, March and in April, and I can I can train dogs and work dogs for almost three months straight, and then even May the birds will later on will start to nest, which I back off a little bit and sure. don't go by them, and then they're nesting in June, and then I wait until the fall to work my dogs. Even though I must say that I have I have around sixteen acres that I own that's. I have a completely fenced in, and I exercise my dogs. I have a I have a small exerciser, and my dogs uh, can stay on that I don't have to attend to. And then I then I let them out in my sixteen acres and walk with them and let them run that full circuit and exercise. So I really try to work on my dogs and keep them in good shape almost every day. Yeah, and you and I both know that they love to exercise and they love to run. So that's a good thing for them. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, I think it's very important. Uh, I believe it, it's extremely important that to really have a dog in top-notch condition and really a good bird hunter, is, you really have to work them almost year-round. And unfortunately, a lot of people are not in that position, but my old saying is the more you get them out, the more they learn and the more you have to really have to work with them. They kind of do it on their own. Yeah, absolutely. That proximity to wild birds is a 
is a big factor in, like you said, not everybody has access to that. But again, sometimes, sometimes I think people might be surprised where they could find wild birds and and get on, you know, especially people in the South, you know, they can get on woodcock or different birds. Sometimes you got to do a little bit of digging, but like you said, not everybody has that access right out their back door. So it can be a challenge. Yes. And I, you know, they, you know, if they live in an area that is highly populated, then, then I suggest and I, that they join some kind of a hunting club or a dog training club. So they do have some access on birds on the, on a preserve, which we which we call a preserve. Uh, yeah. Yep. Uh, if they have access to that, but I mean that's if that's the only the only avenue they have really to train a dog. That's what you do, and then. But uh, you'd be surprised when a, when a guy takes a dog from the east or midwest and so forth and comes out to hunting. I think if the good dogs, the smart dogs, it really doesn't take very long for them to to really start to pick up. They they might not uh, make as big as casts and uh, run big, and, and, and maybe the uh, person that owns a dog doesn't want that to happen, but. You'd be surprised how much a dog will really adjust to from going from one place to the other. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I think a lot of people, you know, they start talking about range and stuff. But what I I feel that I hear a lot of good quality breeders and men and women that have been doing this for a long time, they, you know, a smart dog will adapt and adjust to the to the cover and the habitat, just like you're saying. I had a little experience with that last year. I brought, I made my first trip west. We hunted North Dakota and Montana, and I've got a four-year-old English setter. He was four at the time, and he has spent most of his time in the rough grouse and woodcock woods. And when we went out west, he had his ups and downs. You could definitely tell it was a new place and new birds for him, and he wasn't perfect, but he he did adjust and and he did some good things out there, and it was it was really fun to see my dog work uh, in different cover. Absolutely, absolutely, and and they do you get and uh, to reinforce that point of view, I took two of my dogs quite some time ago up to Alaska to hunt really heavy cover for. Uh, spruce grouse. Oh, sure. And it was a, it was amazing how my dogs were really unsure of getting off the trail. And it took about an hour for my two dogs to really adjust to start working that heavy cover. They didn't really know what quite was going on. And they would swing back and make sure that they knew where I was. Sure. It was interesting to watch them. And then they finally adjusted and they were, they were fine. Yeah. So, I would I would suggest that any any person that has a has a bird dog that wants to come west and and I think the experience is very good for them and very good for the dog and and my advice is that when you do bring your dog out just let him be and and let him go and and uh, don't be hard on him just they'll figure it out. Yeah, that's that's really good advice, Ben. And we'll we'll definitely talk a little bit more about bird dogs, but we're gonna we'll rewind a little bit and. I guess you talked a little bit about the weather this spring and perhaps some inclement weather here and there, but for somebody that's been out in Montana for 60 years, what is your take so far on the spring conditions for for birds? Uh, good, bad, neutral, or not sure yet? Oh, yeah. the what, I'm getting some reports that the pheasants didn't do bad uh, uh, in some areas in eastern Montana up around... At Lewistown country and so forth, and I just talked to a fellow up there that there, I think the the Hungarian partridge basically 
we have gone into a kind of a decline of Hungarian partridge for the last, uh, starting about the last three years. So it's going to take a while for them to kind of recycle, I think, and start getting into numbers again. Um, the, the interesting thing about Huns, basically, and also and even sharp tails, is, is uh, they, they, they actually the winter really doesn't bother them that much. You know, Huns, they can... They can take a lot of snow because they dive into it and get under the snow and feed. And sharp tails have a tendency to move from one place to another and feed. And they can also even uh, live off of tree buds and et cetera. So the native uh, prairie birds, I think, adapt very well, like sage grouse and uh, and sharp tails sure. um, and the in the in the forest grouse, but. And I think the Huns have adapted extremely well. But the interesting thing is that I've had a lot of quite a few calls from people talking to me about the Hun population. I don't think the Hun population is going to be extremely good this year. Um, the hunting, uh, it was not good last year, the year before. And I've really tried to study this extremely hard. And I'm a, I'm a real field biologist when it comes to studying the Huns and I have a feeling it's never been really documented, but I have a I have a feeling that they're they're kind of like a kind of like rough gulfs and there's some kind of a cycle going on. They seem to seem to over the sixty years I've seen the ups and downs, and they're almost like a I don't know what year, maybe a ten year cycle, a twelve cycle, or I have no idea the number of years, but it seems to work out that way to me. Sure, and you probably know. Like the rough grouse cycle, a lot of times there there really is no clear understanding of what the influences are. There's lots of theories, and there I'm sure there are multiple influences on it. Do you have any? Do you have any suspicions, or you know, from your perspective, anything? What do you think impacts the hun population other than weather, which is kind of always the obvious one? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think I think you know, there's there's been some study on the rough grouse about the quakies and et cetera. Yep. And there's some real studies on that and the set of your and about the uh that cycle, that kind of follow that cycle. And it's really kind of hard to put a handle on what causes that, but I I think there's a lot of a lot of factors involved. I I think not only with the weather changes or the you know, I think maybe some real dry drought areas late in the fall. It might have as much an effect on a real hard uh, winter or a spring. I do know that if you, during the nesting season, which starts, they start laying eggs about now and now, and they use they have a large clutch, usually from about 16 to 22 eggs, which is a large number for a game bird. But anyway, that, that takes a long time for them to lay that many eggs, almost a month, and then they have to incubate for 24 days. So I think... The most vulnerable time for I think for the Huns are is that is that period right after they hatch. If we get some real bad rains and no insects life, that's extremely what they depend on. Those chicks have to have they have to have insects from the day they hatched at least fourteen days in a row uh, to really survive. So, sure. and if there's a low population of insects at that time. Because of rain or cold or whatever, the Huns will take a hit. There's no doubt about it, and the cubbies will be smaller. So, but it's it's a it's. I'm studying them 
for over 60 years, and like I say, I, I almost wrote the book on him, and I'll tell you what, I, I, can, <laughs> I have a lot of theories, but we really don't know, and it's very hard to tell. Yeah, yeah, like anything, you know, science-related. Yeah, and... right, and I think it, I think one of the ways to, to tell people about that is that there's been a tremendous amount of studies on rough grouse the cycles and so forth, and, you know, I, I basically believe that probably all game birds probably have some kind of a cycle. I, I, I really, I really believe that. You know, I don't. I think that's just that's just part of uh, their environment. In fact, if you stop and think of you, you can't have a bumper year every every single year because we'd we'd be knee deep in huns. So right, something has to adjust. So there are some some natural mechanisms out there that that help that particular population and the rise and fall and the rise and fall. So yeah, absolutely. And, it's, it has nothing to do, and I believe I, some people would disagree with this, but it, it has nothing to do with, with predation, or it doesn't have to, nothing to do with numbers of being shot. I think it's, that's, that's only probably, if you do the studies, that's hunting population maybe takes 10%, and uh, predation takes about 10%, and et cetera. So, and uh, natural causes like highways or fences and so forth will take a few, but that's not a that's not a real factor. I've seen you know I've seen areas that they're so dug in many hunts that in some years that you're into hunts all day long, and then I've seen other years that I walked for miles and and uh, found a pair of birds. So and it's the same areas I hunt. So it's interesting. Yeah, we learn something new every time we take a walk, don't we, Ben? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and that I think that's. I think that's the fun of, it. and we learn we learn something every time we take a walk about our dogs too. Yes, exactly the same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, de- definitely. Uh, I the Hungarian partridge is the one bird that I was not fortunate enough to bag when I was out there last year. So they're still on my list. I am coming. I'll be back in Montana and North Dakota this September. So I'm uh, I'm hoping to check Huns off my list because they are a neat bird. I saw a couple flush, but they were. I think they were out of range, and then we flushed a covey off a road. They're really neat birds, but we just we just didn't get into a whole lot of them last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was that was true uh, statewide. Yeah, I can you know so yeah, I can later on. I I start getting reports, and I can fill you on it, some of the locations, et cetera. But uh, I don't think it's going to be a great year. But that has never stopped me from going afield. <laughs> yeah, me, me either. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> so, well, Ben, let's can... let's take a step backwards here a little bit, and let's get a little bit of your story because I know you've you've done another podcast or two. You've been on Ron's podcast, and I think a lot of people are probably familiar with you just in your you know prolific writing, lots of articles and books, but. I want to make sure that the listeners are a little bit familiar with you, and let's get some of your story and how you wound up in Montana. And basically, well, the question I'll ask to get you started is, you know, where did where did upland hunting begin for you? Yeah, okay, that's uh, I've written it quite a bit in my books. In fact, uh, I just did an article for that special issue for Pheasants Forever, which I talked about that. But I think that's yeah, I think that's a fun thing to talk about, and I think people are interested in that. So. Let me start from kind of the very beginning. And when I was when I was in grade school, uh, in fact, in second grade, my grandfather was originally from England, and uh, he would come up 
where I lived in northern Illinois, and he would spend a weekend, and I would I would go hunting with him, and I was and he was I was kind of his bird dog, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so so I had to break the brush, and then he'd walk in and he'd talk, and he he would always basically say back in England that they had these wonderful pointers, and if you really want to hunt game birds. You should, you should have a pointing dog. And that was the first indication that I even thought about a dog. And I'm, now I'm talking about second grade. So, sure. And that's in the 30s. So, but anyway, then from there, we happened to, when I was in junior high, we happened to have a friend that lived in a big city. It was outside Chicago, I guess, that had a Springer Spaniel that really needed to, to live out in the country. And so what happened was they gave the dog to our family. And that dog was, he was a Springer, and his name was Mike. I called him Mike the dog, actually, and I was very proud of him. And I used to take him out. And uh, believe it or not, I lived about a mile, about a mile and a half, almost two miles from the school I was going to. So I would walk the railroad tracks into town and go to school and Mike would follow me and then when I got out of school he would be there waiting for me and walk me back and so when I first got my first shotgun in in eighth grade or seventh grade I guess eighth grade I started hunting with him and, and he'd we'd, we'd I'd hunt on my way to school and then I'd hike the gun and then go to school and and hunt my way back home again <laughs> basically it's kind of anyway and if and I never found very many birds and if and in fact it if I did find a, a covey going to school, I'd, I'd skip school and hunt. <laughs> uh, okay, so I did that a couple times, and, and I kind of had to pay the price, but it was worth it. So I bet it was. But, what kind of birds were you were you flushing on the way to school? Uh, bobwhite quail. Oh, okay. We had, we had bobwhite. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have pheasants there also. We had some pheasants and bobwhite quail, and then right in my backyard. We had about 14 acres, and we had a cornfield in the back and a railroad tracks so I used to hunt back then, and and it was it was really kind of a it was very our 14 acres were very was very sloppy farming, which is very good for the quail and the pheasants. So. Sure, yep. But, but the one story I wrote about my, that my first dog Mike then was he was gun shy, and the first time I shot he, he took off running and. And I really felt bad about it. In fact, I even wrote that story about it a little bit. And eventually, I got him to come with me. And, and he'd, I'd shoot, and he'd run a little ways and come back. And I was real cautious with him. I finally, he figured it out, and I figured it out. And, and uh, I hunted until him through my high school years. And then he passed away, and then I left for the service. And then, so, and then from there, basically, after serving in the in the Navy for four years during the Korean War. Uh, I got out and went to school to Northern Illinois University, and I was looking basically for a setter, and I really liked the looks of setters, so I inquired around, and it just so happened that there, I was told there was a guy in town that moved the college town in DeKalb, Illinois. There was a guy that had setters, and I went to see him, and he said, no, I don't have setters. I have Brittany, French Britneys. I have Britneys. I said, I've never heard of them. So he showed them to me, and I and they were they looked just like my Springer, just about. I just fell in love with them, and I asked him, I was, was thinking about possibly buying one from him. And 
And he said, well, I wouldn't do that if you were in college. But he said, one of my guys that trains dogs is graduating from college, and I'm looking for a guy to help me take care of the dogs. And would you be willing to do that? So I actually jumped at the opportunity. And sure, he was the guy. He was kind of my mentor of the showed me how to help me take the dog. He let me take the dogs out and we'd train and I would train, I was training field trials for him a little bit and that's how I got started with Brittany. So, and, uh, his name was Walter Oberlin, Oberlin Kennels. And he was actually one of the, one of, there's only three of them, I think. He was one of the first guys that to ever bring Brittany's, French Brittany's in the United States. Interesting. And back then there was only a couple kennels that had, and he had, he had, he, I think he had the biggest kennel in probably in the United States, the Britneys. And I worked for him for four years. And when I left, uh, he gave me two dogs. And then later on, I got another dog from him. But to give you a little rundown from Illinois, I taught one year in Illinois and in Northern Illinois and hunted up in that country. And then I took a, I took a job in Washington State for two years and drove through Montana. And uh, it only took me two years I said I'm going to live in Montana. So, <laughs> so you were so you were I traveling thought, maybe back and forth a little bit from Illinois to Washington, and when you drove through Montana, you, you I got, did. got I did excited back three times. I went I went to sign a contract and drove back, and then I camped in Yellowstone Park and fished and spent the summer that one summer basically. And I had my I had two dogs. I had my two dogs, and I did a lot of hunting in Washington. I uh, hunted uh, valley quail, chuckers, pheasants. And blue grouse, um, and hunts, and hunts. So interesting enough, the first hunt, the first flush I ever saw, which I've written about it, the Hungarian partridge was, I was training dogs for Walter Oberlin in Northern Illinois, and my dogs, his dogs, basically I was training, pointed, and I thought they were pheasants, and we flushed a covey of hunts. Those are the first hunts I ever saw. That was about 1956. Wow. I really was interested in those birds. And then when I went to Washington for two years, they had a season on him. And I think in that period of two years of honey, two seasons, I think I shot four huns. I shot at more than that. <laughs> but I think I killed four. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, then I basically wanted to come to Montana to fish and, and also to, to hunt with my dog. So when, then when I got to Montana that summer, well, I took a job. I have a biology degree, too. I took a job in Yellowstone National Park as a naturalist. And in fact, they wanted me to work full-time as a naturalist, and you couldn't have dogs. And so I got a teaching job in, in Livingston. And uh, that's kind of a fun story. And, and uh, basically nobody uh, had bird dogs. In fact, really? To be honest with you, I was the I was one I was one of the first the first person to ever bring Britney's uh, west. There was a guy in Kansas that did it that had him, but the far west there was no Britney's. That's quite interesting. So, yeah, and then when I got to Livingston that year, I called up Walter Oman and got a mail from him, and then I had the three dogs, and uh, that's when I started. I wanted to start it, and then I. I inquired about bird hunting, and nobody said no. Nobody ever hunts bird. They hunt pheasants here, but and ducks. But everyone had a leader lab, or anyone that hunted ducks had a, some kind of a retriever, and said, you know, people just don't hunt those prairie birds. And I, and I even told the game warden that when I got my license, that's what I'm going to do. And he said, well, Ben, he said you're going to have to place. He said, other than having 
rattlesnakes and coyotes. He said, you're going to have the place to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so basically back, and that was 1962. Back then I had my little Volkswagen then, and there wasn't any place in the whole Park County that I couldn't hunt. I, everybody knew this crazy school teacher with a, some fuzzy dogs and a Volkswagen was out hunting, chasing those wild birds. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's exactly what happened. And, I, and I'll tell you, what, I devoted my life to hunting after school and weekends. And, and that's basically how I got started. Do you ever get that Volkswagen stuck anywhere? <laughs> you know, that Volkswagen was a lot of places. I never did get it. Well, let's see, I got I maybe dug out a couple times. Not, I'll tell you, that was one of the best putting vehicles I had. <laughs> the uh, the only problem is I, my dog got skunked a couple times. It was kind of difficult driving back home. Oh yeah, in a Volkswagen, but <laughs> it was a it, it was a it was a wonderful little vehicle for for, for that kind of hunting. It, it had you know a little Volkswagen had, had a little well in the back. It was called. In the back seat, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the old Volkswagens, but it had kind of a little. Well, that's where my dogs used to jump back in there and stay. And okay, there were there were times that you know, I picked four guys. There'd be four of us and three dogs in the vehicle. So. <laughs> wow, <Yeah. laughs> we 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 had a great time. Yeah, Ben, were you an were you an English teacher? No, I wasn't. I was a shop teacher. Oh, shop teacher. Okay, <laughs> I taught violet. Well, I taught drafting. And then in Washington, I taught general science. And in Montana, I was hired as the industrial art teacher and art teacher. Okay. I have, an, I have a master's in art and also in architecture. So in, in, so in Livingston, I started a four-year program in high school of teaching architecture, which is the only, probably the only school and only high school probably in the nation that had a, a four-year program in architecture. Yeah, um, sure. Which I had a lot of girls and boys, and but then I taught besides architecture for 15 years, and I'm a sculptor and a I, my media and art is mostly big steel stuff and okay, but, but in small stuff from jewelry making to ceramics and but it's all it's all sculpture. I I don't use I don't I I can do watercolors but I don't I'm not that good at it so I I've always stuck basically being at a, a a sculptor. Sure. Well, where I was going with that is, I, I'm curious where the writing entered. The entered. Were you always a writer? Did that uh, did that come out of your experiences in the uplands? How did that come about? No, you know, to be honest with you, I might I may be exaggerating a little bit, but I think in I think in my college years, I used to dread going to my English classes. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, no, I was not. I was not very good at it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and I just never. I got it. It was interesting. Yes, I've always been a photographer. Okay. Um, when I was in the service, I bought. When I was in that, I bought the first Nikon that was ever introduced to the states. In fact, I bought it from Japan. Basically, a Nikon, my first Nikon, and I've always. And photography kind of goes along with uh, along with art. You know, it's it's almost the same kind of eye contact or media looking through a camera and visualizing and, yeah. and uh, I think they're all connected. I mean, I think, you know, I think we speak like a, uh, like the Renaissance man. I think architecture and art and photography and even writing kind of all go together. And so basically you asked me about my writing. So 
what happened is it was about 1980, about 1980, and before that I was doing a lot of photography, and I was one of the few guys that really worked on photographing birds flushing. If you look back in those days, there was not very much of that stuff. So really, when I started doing that, there was a, the magazines really bought my stuff, you know, from Gray Sporting Journal to the Shooting Sportsman and a lot of the magazines. And when I, and I did a lot of photography for uh, the other magazines. So basically, people would say, usually a photographer is not a writer. But since I, being a biologist, I had so much background about the birds, I would start writing about them. Then these sporting magazines really encouraged me. They said, you know, with your photography, you just got to start writing. And that's basically kind of how I started. Sure. You know, there definitely are some, there's a framework and a structure to writing, but if you have the knowledge and you have the stories and you have something to say, you know, a lot of times you can become a writer, I think. Oh, I think you're absolutely correct. And I, I, I had, you know, I had the photography to really back up my stories. Yeah. And I also had the, the knowledge of the game birds I'm running about and also the knowledge because I had bird dogs. So I had, I had everything you really, really need to be, be an outdoor writer. It was just a matter of me working at becoming a writer. And it was very easy for me once I got started. Uh, and I was accepted. And now, basically, now what I'm doing is, believe it or not, I, I do a lot more writing than photography. I don't... The thing about my photography, even today, is that I have, in the neighborhood, I have about between forty and 50,000 slides. Wow. That's what I have, slides. Now, I can, I still use them. I still, in fact, when I, I write for Cut Your Eyes magazine full-time, when I was asked when they first started, and I use, I send them in or digitize them, and I I still use, I. in fact, I just used a photograph for that magazine that I took, that photograph, I think I took that photograph 20-some years ago. <laughs> wow. In a slide, and it was, and back then you had to work at it. Back then you had a camera with a roll of 36, slide, okay, frames. And you didn't know what you got when you shot it. Right. Okay. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> now, now photography is a little easy. So, and I, and I just basically was one of the first guys that really started photographing, and I worked at it. Cubby birds rising. I mean, that funny head. I used always use Nikon's Cubby rises. I also one of the first guys that ever really developed how to open up a gun and the shells shot out. When I first, I probably went through four rows of, of slides, film to get a shot like that. Now with digital cameras, you can do it easy, right? You know, yep. And being an artist, I came up with the idea that I would I would hang birds and photograph still lifes of birds. And if you look back, I was one of the first guys that really kind of did that. And then I start just photographing just fo- just feathers, and and uh, I think my my art background certainly had a lot to do with my photography. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like it sounds like you inspired a lot of the stuff that guys like myself and and friends of mine were all were taking pictures with our phone and trying to do cool stuff and take pictures of birds yeah, flushing and, and hanging birds. Absolutely. And I, we we've got you to thank for it, Ben, and I'm happy to do that. Yeah, and that's and that's kind of what you just you know you just do that. And 
And I and basically I did the I kind of did the same thing with my writing. I have a style of writing. I'm and I don't write anymore a lot of hook and bullet stuff. Uh, I'd like to write about how to hunt birds and, and what they do and the ecology about them, etc. Yeah. And as a good example, I was uh, in Cubby Rise magazine is now I think six years old, and they when they called me, I was the first uh, writer they asked if if I would be a columnist for a full-time columnist and I accepted and they and believe it or not the first few stories I wrote for him I wrote about how to hunt Bob Whites in, in the south and how to in the midwest and about and they finally said Ben we'd like you to write you have so much information I just write stories about and, and that's basically what I did in my in my last book you know best day yet is is a is accumulation of all the first 24 stories I wrote for uh basically he, Rise. And they're, they're about people, places, fishing, and hunting. And I enjoy writing. For, I really enjoy writing for Cubby Rise because they let me write about anything I ever write about. I just wrote a story, two stories about fishing and one about an old, an, an old homestead. And, and that, to me, is kind of fun writing. We pause this episode of the podcast for just a moment to let you know that today's show is also brought to you by Trinity Kennels, home of the Apanuel Breton. Trinity Kennels French Brittany Spaniels are from champion bloodlines, field-tested and family-approved for over 30 years. Coming from the most prestigious and elite French bloodlines as well as American champions, Trinity Kennels is committed to producing premier Apanuel Bretons for the field trialer and foot hunter alike. We now return to the Project Upland podcast. Yeah, you've got stories to tell and stories to share, and that's that's fun that, that you've right. got the freedom to do so. Yeah. yeah, and I think I have a, I have a pretty good following. I think that people like my my stories. Oh, absolutely. Yep, I'm uh, I'm definitely familiar with. I've got your. I actually picked up your book, um, Western Wings, before my before I made the trip out west last year, and I really enjoyed reading that just because I that was my my first trip out there, and I, I wanted to have some kind of inclination of what I was getting in into and i figured uh, figured your one of your books would be a good start yeah the western wings was uh i did uh, the, the second edition and there's a lot of information in that book there uh, is and and it's about actually i had it believe it or not that well then i have huns and hun hunting that's uh, that's that's the most complete book ever written on hungarian partridge there isn't anybody that's written that detail of not only the biology and the ecology of the bird, but also the hunting method. There's no book really like that. And, but I have, it's interesting, I have a, my book, uh, Hunting the Quails of North America. Um, I have a lot of biologists that call me about that book and say, you know, Ben, this is the best book I've ever read on quail. And that to me is a compliment when, when the field biologists or when biologists in different states call me and say, you know, if, if you really want to learn how to hunt quail, get that book. And it's, and that's a coffee table book. But if you read that, Hunting the Quails in North America, if you want to hunt all the species, that's, that's almost a Bible to have. And I'm, I'm very proud of that book. Yeah. Ben, let's let's talk a little bit about, actually, I want to ask you this question because I think I've, I've picked up on a little bit, but have you... You're you're famous really for hunting the West, but it sounds like you've had some experience. You've been to Alaska. Have you pretty much hunted all over? Hunted just about every upland bird? Oh, absolutely! In fact, I was other than Charlie Waterman. That's years past. I think I was the first, the second guy would besides Charlie that that hunted every bird in North America. Okay, and I did it with I did it with uh, Winston, my dog, and but 
I'd done that. Basically, I've done that about eight times. I mean, I there isn't there isn't. I've I've been to Alaska and hunted. I've hunted as a good example in Alaska. I've hunted. There's a nine month a nine month season for ptarmigan. I've hunted them in August. I've hunted them in March, and I've hunted them in May. <laughs> and uh, I've hunted them up there probably I don't know fifteen times. And there isn't any game bird that I haven't hunted multiple times. Uh, I've hunted quail in the south. I hunted quail in the Midwest a lot. And I think one of the most difficult birds probably to hunt is uh, basically uh, a lot of people thought Mern's quail were, but they're comparably easy. I think uh, it's a matter of getting on a place to find them. But I think uh, mountain quail are probably the most difficult. Um, I've heard that a few times recently. And I've hunted. In fact, my my book of that's the one good thing about that hunting the hunting the quails in North America that gives you a real detailed of the habitat those birds are in. So when you go to a place and start, you take that book and, and if if you read each one of those birds' habitat, you find that you usually find the bird. That's why that book is so helpful because yeah. it's not about shooting the bird; it's more about how to find them. So I've, like I say, I've hunted uh, as a good example. I used to hunt. From about 1986, when I retired, I would hunt about 200 days a year and fished. Uh, I start here in September 1st, and I would wind up in New Mexico around February 15th, and then I would go to Alaska and then hunt in the spring. So, so you hunt 200 days a year. You used to hunt 200 days a year and and fish the other 165. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, pretty close. Um, <laughs> I was I was notorious for hunting on my anniversary and forgetting about it. Um, oh, Ben! <laughs> and uh, I wrote a story about that too, but my wife was understanding. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that was nice of her. <laughs> well, I, I originally I originally told her that my my anniversary, the wedding anniversary, is in in the September eighth, and and. And that's when the bird season starts the first. So I said, yep. you know, I think we ought to switch our anniversary until in August. <laughs> <laughs> I said, we'll celebrate it in August. And I said, how about the 24th? <laughs> My wife kind of rolled her eyes. And, and uh, then I forgot what date I said. So that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know all about that, Ben. My, I'm a, I'm a Minnesota guy, so my anniversary, my wedding anniversary, is September seventh, and that is, that's typically a week before the rough grouse season opens here. So I thought I was really smart at the time, but now, since I've gotten married, now you know, now I've discovered this this Western hunting, and that starts since that starts September one, Ben. So I got the same predicament as you have. <laughs> yeah, well, that's basically what I did in Illinois when I got married in Illinois. The season didn't start until October. Right. So yep. I was safe. But okay. <laughs> yeah, now we both got ourselves in trouble. <laughs> so my wife is very understanding. So Yeah, mine too. And uh, she doesn't she encourages me to hunt and raise dogs, so but talking about dogs, just to give you an idea, since from the days in nineteen fifty six, you know, it's some sixty years so forth. I've owned myself, I've owned over about a little over 160 dogs. Wow. That I've had. But I see my kennel used to, I only have eight right now, but 
that's the lowest number I've had in 30 years, um, or more than that, 40 years. I usually have about 14 dogs, because it would take, the hunt hunts, it would take me, I like to hunt four, to, four dogs at a time, so I'd take, sometimes I'd have at least three double braces, so I could drop four dogs off and then run them for two or three hours and four more and so forth, so yep. and to really cover the country. and. But I like dogs, and I have a nice kennel set up. I have kennel runs, and I've and uh, so I've had a lot of I've had a lot of dogs. And and when I first got started, I used to raise. At one time, I I my kennel used to be called the Williams Pride uh, Williams Pride Kennels, and that was in the late '60s, '70s. Um, and uh, I sold a few dogs. I didn't have a puppy factory. I'd have a litter of dogs to keep a couple dogs in itself as surplus and um, then I found that I I really didn't I didn't like selling the dogs. Just I guess the reason being is I wanted I wanted to be able to and that's what I did to, to my surplus dog to give dogs to people that I knew really sure. hurt like I did. Yeah. And that's kinda what I did. Yeah. And so for years what I did was I'd raise a litter about every year and I'd keep Three or four out of it, and then maybe give three away or two away. And but to very to very special people that I knew hunted like I did. Yeah, I didn't want one of my little Britneys as a house dog. You know. Right. Yeah. yeah. You want to make sure they were hunting yeah. like they were meant to. Yeah, and I have right now. I, I have. I never. I always raised Britneys, but I never raised pointers. And the the reason I got into pointers, which is kind of interesting, is a lot of guys used to call me that were. Pointer guy, I'm talking about English pointers, yep. which we call pointers now. And they would say, basically, they, you know, they say, "Oh, if you want a big running dog, why don't you get a pointer?" And I'd say, "Well." Um, so a couple of those guys came out, and they finally said, mm, "You do have big running dogs." But and then I got to the point that I got a couple pointers from guys like they would give me a pointer, and I'd give them a Brittany. So that's how I got into some very good pointers. Um, most of my pointers come out of Oklahoma, a friend of mine, which are terrific, uh, terrific dogs. In fact, I got a pointer from Dave, and she's doing well. Uh, so right now I got about half pointers and half Britneys, but to me they're just all dogs. And they're, We can talk about French Britneys and American Britneys, and I'll, I'll just put it that way. As far as I'm concerned, they're all Britneys, because when I started in the 50s, they were just Britneys. And they're all from France anyway, so... Sure. But... That's a that's a long story. So yeah, yeah. Now we now we have now we have French Britneys, American Britneys, and and uh, and basically the reason is because the in America they the American the American Britneys they don't want them tricolor dogs. So that was kind of that's kind of a, what happened there. But to right. me they're all French. They're all Britneys, Britneys. from France. Yeah. yeah. Well, Ben, I think people that are familiar with your writing, they definitely are probably familiar with the fact that you, you're kind of known for running a lot of dogs at a, at the same time, you know, four dogs, but could you talk about that a little bit? What do you like about that? And what is, what works really well for putting four dogs on the, on the ground out in that country? Um, well, that's an interesting question. I think, I think you can cover probably as much country maybe with just a, a brace of dogs. Uh, I just happen to like four dogs on the ground. Okay. You know? Yeah. Um, but I cover a lot of country. I mean, there's, there are times basically that I, I'll run all 12 of them. So I have, I have 12 dogs down and I got, and I got 
12 beepers that I've used. I don't use shot collars. I just train my dogs using a beeper just for calm. I don't use them for, you know, I trained dogs a long, long time before they ever had beepers or shot collars. Sure. We have something called a whistle, okay? Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. And, and, I mean, I think shot collars are certainly helpful, and they're an easy way to, easier way to train a dog, but I think they're overused sometimes, but... Sure. Getting back to my what I like to run with four dogs, it's just that I just like to see them, and I don't think in a necessarily in a in a grouse woods that four dogs would be very good. You know, keeping yeah. track of them. Yeah. Because um, they're hunting a little tighter country or hunting, but when I when I was hunting quail in Oklahoma and also Kansas, I used to use four a lot, and uh, but I just I just I just like dogs. I I think I think dogs are. That's the fun of hunting. If if I no longer had dogs, I probably wouldn't go hunting. Yeah. In fact, I know I wouldn't. Yeah. So. Yeah, and like you said, out in that country, when you can see him work, it 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 is a lot of fun. I mean, that is very very enjoyable for somebody who who likes to walk. Yeah, and another thing, I don't I don't have to see my dogs to hunt. I mean, I hunt rolling country and so forth, and yep. I train my dogs. Most of the time, I'll I did use the I did use a, a Garmin. Uh, I guess what GPS I get. I yep. don't even. Yep, GPS caller. Yeah. I have one, and, and uh, I I like it, but I I don't use it very much anymore. I just like my beepers. I had one of my Britneys and one of my pointers. The longest distance they pointed, there were seven hundred and fifty yards. And made a point. Wow, that's a pretty long ways. And that is. They never moved until I got there. I could have probably sat down and had lunch, and they'd still be there. <laughs> and, but they were, they're good dogs, and they just, the interesting thing is, which I have found, I, I, I don't know if anybody has done this, but since I use a beeper, sometimes my dogs will go out of sight and over a hill, and I don't know where they are, and I'll beep them. And so one of my pointers and one of my Brittany's, Mary and my Brittany and Misty and my pointer, when I beep them, they, they might be on point, and I wouldn't know that because I didn't, couldn't see them. They were smart enough. They would come back come over the hill, basically, come towards me and stop and turn around and then go back and point. They were telling me that, hey, we're over there pointing, get over here, okay? Yep, hurry up. <laughs> yeah. That's and, a smart dog. You know, that's thinking. That's correct. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, I don't, you know, I think if you have, if you, have if, you, if you came out here with four dogs, I would suggest if you want to do a hard day of hunting, I would hunt probably two at a time, or even if you maybe had only two dogs and you wanted to really extend their hunting, to do my hunting on singles, singly, and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Well, that. But I do that on I do that on prairie birds. I mean, when I talk about if I'm hunting a cornfield or I used to hunt pheasants in, and then. I would rarely ever put four down. I'd usually put a brace down. Sure, yeah. So there's a, yeah, like I say, when I hunt rough grouse, I would do the same. But, I mean, I hunt big country. Yeah, and dog power is a dog power is a luxury out there. You know, you had it so you could use it, but like you said, you definitely got to make sure that you're using it in the appropriate way to maximize time in the field. Yeah, and that's, and that's correct. And I tell these guys that have a, have a dog that is, that is, uh, doesn't run big or that's a real tight hunter, they can, they can still come out here and hunt. You just got to cover a lot more ground, sure. you know, yep. than what I do. I, I can, I can cover 
I mean, I can cover uh, roughly. I just trying to think of a good example would be. I can I can probably cover eighty acres uh, with four dogs down probably in just a few minutes. So I mean, in a mile a mile square field, I can I can cover that probably in fifteen minutes. Although excuse me, my dogs can. Yeah, yeah. So you just gotta so go. You just gotta go where they find the birds. Yeah, yeah, and like I say, and that that also shows that that shows you another thing is that you know you're not gonna find Hans all over the country. I mean, you have to go out and work for him to find a covey yep. and then pursue that covey. My secret is find a covey and then pursue them. Sometimes I might spend the fact I I pursued one covey and I I write everything down. I have a journal and I pursued one covey one late fall. I found them eleven times and never killed a bird. <laughs> that would be that would be a, eleven different days. You mean Ben? Not on the same day? No. Oh no, no eleven eleven jumps that same day. Oh wow. Okay, so same day. I found the same I found the same covey eleven times. In fact, they circled around and I found them twice, three times where I first found them. Wow! Wow! So they kept coming back. Yeah, and it's made a big circle, and yeah, they they were very they were very spooky, and I, I never got on them for a good shot. But I I had eleven jumps, and it's not unusual for me to find a covey and might I might flush them three or four times. But that's a lot of miles. And that's they have a pretty good range. Yeah, and I've also had them fly and see them where I thought they land, and uh, they disappeared. So I've been there too. Okay. So. <laughs> yep. Yep. So, well, Ben, I know that you. Uh, we know that you love dogs, but I know that you also love double guns too. I want to talk to you a little bit about guns. Did that was that always? Uh, did that start early for you, or did that start later? Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, um, I first had my first double gun I bought in 1963. It was a Browning superimposed 20 gauge Browning superimposed. Uh, Belgium Browning. Yep. And I just, I, I, I just about literally shot that gun out. That was just a, an extension of my arm. I mean, yeah. I, and then I had another one. I bought that in 1963, and then I bought my next Browning about 1980 something. I had a pair, um, and I shot that first one of hundreds of rounds that for hunts. And then basically, I got into really into. I've always liked English guns. I got an English gun, uh, say around let's see, maybe, probably twenty some years ago. And I've had probably of English guns. I've had probably. I'm only guessing right now. I've had at least probably twenty, maybe maybe twenty five different kinds, from box locks to side locks, and I've had just about every make from. The, Purdy to a boss to I never had a Holland Holland. Now I have now I have three Churchills and I have and uh, I only I just have one Purdy. No longer have a boss, but the the one they say the reason I have those guns I don't think is is the fact that they're they're very good for my writing. Basically, sure, yeah, um, it's something I write about, and I love studying about them. And I'm I'm really kind of a, a history buff of every gun I purchase i i try to find its history yeah and that's what i do as an example i i have a churchill 16 gate churchill which is a beautiful gun it was that was built in 1926 and it was 
originally owned by a Maharaja someplace in India or someplace. Wow, yeah. Yeah, well, there's, and then I did research on the Maharaja, and there's only, there's only about 600 Maharajas, by the way, so. (laughs) (laughs) Now we know. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's what my research told me, but, (laughs) yeah, then I I really like the history. I think my, I have a, I have a pretty that's built in 1887 that I love. It's just, it's a lovely old gun. It's in beautiful shape and refinished, but I like. Who I right at my age right now I like light guns. Sure, yeah. Most of them, all of my guns are less than six pounds. Well, my pretty is six three, but I like real extremely light guns. Do you have a favorite configuration as far as you know gauge, stock, triggers? I used to be a real twenty eight gauge buff. Okay. Um, three twenty eight gauges. I have one. I don't have any preference basically, um, other than a gun being light. Sure. Yep. I used to my Browning was a six. My Browning was a twenty gauge, and I think ballistic wise and so forth, I probably, I think a twelve gauge and a sixteen gauge and twenty eight gauge pattern better than a than a twenty gauge. Okay, and that's that's pretty well established. But I do have a lovely little twenty gauge, and and I can see why a lot of guys. I like sixteen gauges because they were light, but now I'm into twelve gauges that are. As light as sixteen gauges, and I like little two inch shells too. Oh yeah, yeah, one. yep. You can get those two inch shells from RST. Oh yeah, yeah. I yeah. know Morris pretty well, and get yeah, get my shells from him. I have a little twenty. I have a little twelve gauge that's five pounds. Let's see, five pounds three ounces. Uh, two inch shells. That's a twelve gauge. Wow. Five pounds. Five pounds three ounces. That's a heck of a bird gun. gun. It's, yeah, it's a uh, twenty six inch barrel. And it's a, a Mortimer. Uh, it's a lovely gun. I see it. It's a box lock. And not, it's a nice little box lock. They're kind of hard to come by, but I certainly certainly like them. Sure. Mm-hmm. So basically, for for most folks, why I have English guns is I think it, it goes along very well with my writing. It's, it's something else to write about, and, and I like researching. And I do have some people ask me, say, "Oh, I'm just kind of a snob when it comes to guns," but <laughs> I just say that laughingly but okay well it's one of those things ben where somebody who just starts out upland hunting they're probably not going to go get a two inch 12 gauge english gun right but when you've been doing it for 60 plus years your interest develops and and your tastes develop over time so that's absolutely correct yeah yeah so i'll just say i started out my i started out with using a pump uh First gun I have, and I still have it, is a Lefevre, double barrel Lefevre. I mean, it's a wonderful gun. Yep. Super brush gun. Lefevre. I've had uh, Remy, I had a, uh, I've had a couple of Remingtons years ago for duck hunting, and and I've always liked uh, the Ithaca Model 37. I have a whole set of those, 28 gauge, 2016, and you know, that's a pump, uh, American built, lovely gun. And they're light, and they're, and, they're, and they're good guns. I think they're wonderful. Of all the pumps, it's my favorite, Model 37. I won't keep you too much longer, Ben, but speaking of uh, speaking of new upland hunters, I, w- I want to get a, just a little bit of your advice and perspective while we have you on, uh, you know, maybe advice what you, that you have for people that, you know, you've been doing this for a long time, and th- but there are other people that are getting into upland hunting every day, and they've got, you know, kind of uh, aspirations and all this stuff ahead of them. What what advice would you would you maybe give somebody that's interested in upland hunting and and they want to get more into it? Well, I think 
my advice would be to, just like any other sport, I think when you first start, get into it rather gradually and make it fun and, and don't make it hard work. And that's just like fishing, you know, they like going out with a guide and beating the water and making, I mean, the most important thing about upland bird hunting, I think, is to have fun. To me, it's not, it's not the shooting, it's not the killing, it's, it's being out there in a something, a wonderful sport of being outside, yeah. you know, and some people just do it just like to hike without a gun. I, in the last few years, I, I usually carry, go well, I don't carry gun all the time. I have no, at my age and so forth, I have no desire to kill a bird anymore, but it's gone. In fact, a lot of times, if I'm with somebody by myself and a good flush happens, I just, I just raise my gun up and point and say, bang, you're dead and never shoot. <laughs> and, you know, it's just, but my, but my advice is to a beginner, it's important to hunt and to shoot. And that's part of it. Yes. But the other important thing is, is make it enjoyable what you do. If you, if you're not a hard walker, you know, don't kill yourself walking until you work into it. Like, like anything else, you know? Yeah. And I, I honestly believe if you want to, to really add to the upland bird hunting is to have a bird dog, yeah. you know? Yeah. To me, hunting without a bird dog would be an empty exercise and I wouldn't do it. But, and I think shooting clays, if I'm there's, I don't, I don't shoot shooting clays and crap much anymore. I do shoot here a little bit just to, just to, just to tune up to get used to the, my guns, et cetera. But, and I think that's a nice sport to have, but I don't think it necessarily carries over to upland bird hunting. You know, I think it helps you with learning to shoot a gun, but I don't think it carries over that much out in the field. But I think the important thing for any young person in hunting is to just like hiking and getting out and doing it. If you like the outdoors, it's a wonderful sport. Yep, that's very true. I think a, a lot of people listening to this would be would be nodding their heads in agreement, Ben. And and I appreciate that. It's good advice. And and I know I do know that we have we have some people listening that are towards the towards the beginning of their upland hunting adventure and. Uh, it's, it's very, very cool to talk to somebody that's been doing it for such a long time. And obviously upland hunting has been a big part of your life and it's meant a lot to you and you've put a lot back into it, you know, with your research and your writing and you've given a lot back to the upland hunting community. I have, and I haven't, but I've enjoyed it. And I think, I think bird hunting has really kept me young and I'm not that young. Okay. So (laughs) I still do it and I'm, there's not many guys get that can still go out at my age and still do it. And, that's and for sure. It. Yeah, and I really enjoy doing it. So, well, that's great to hear, Ben. I hope you keep after it for for years to come. I really appreciate you taking the time to to speak with me and our listeners today. This was a lot of fun. Uh, again, thanks to Dave for for connecting us and and making this possible. But Ben, thank you very much, and I uh, hope you have a great day. Yeah, it was it was a I had a great time talking to you. So. And uh, thank you, and you take care. All right. Thanks, Ben. See ya. Yep. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to the Project Upland Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And a reminder that this podcast was brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Dog Trick Callers, Yukonuba Dog Food, Gordian Sons Outfitters, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Find more podcasts, articles, films, and much more at projectupland.com 
Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.